Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. And welcome to A Seat at the Sitting. This is a special webinar series presented by the Federal Society's practice groups designed to preview the October SCOTUS docket in 90 minutes or less. Last term was kind of a, uh, was kind of ho-hum for the court. Uh, so we've uh, gathered an excellent panel of legal experts today to excite and inform us about what's next. My name is Nate Kazmarek. I am vice president and director of the practice groups. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of our guests today. We are happy today to have Adam Gustafson uh, lead us through our October program. Adam, how are you? I'm great, Nate. Thanks for having me. Certainly our pleasure to have you as always. Adam is uh, Senior Counsel for Environmental and Regulatory Affairs with Boeing. Uh, before Boeing, he served as Deputy General Counsel at the EPA. And prior to that, he was a partner at Boyd and Gray and Associates. Uh, he received his law degree from Yale Law School and his undergrad from the University of Virginia. For full bios for Adam and all of our panelists, uh, you can uh, check out our website or the promotional emails for this webinar. In a moment, I'll turn it over to Adam. Once our panel has had ample time to uh, summarize and discuss the upcoming cases, we'll go to audience Q&A. Uh, so please think of the difficult questions you'd like to ask them. Audience questions can be submitted via the Zoom function, uh, the Zoom function for Q&A or the raised hand function. Uh, we will do our best to address each of your questions uh, as the time will allow. With that, uh, thank you everyone for being with us this uh, morning. Adam, the floor is yours. Thank you, Nate. It's an honor to be here with the Federalist Society to preview the opening cases of the term. And we are joined by an excellent panel. Professor Donald Koshin of Scalia Law School will address um, a couple of property law and dormant commerce clause cases. Uh, Professor Patrick Parento of Vermont Law School and Charles Yates of the Pacific Legal Foundation will both address a blockbuster environmental law case. And Professor Michael Domino of Widener University Commonwealth Law School will tell us about the court's latest election law case. Um, and as Nate said, we're uh, looking forward to questions from the audience. So please do um, raise your hand or submit a question um, either between each speaker's remarks or at the end of the presentation today. Um, let's turn first to Delaware versus Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, an original jurisdiction case about the achievement of the achievement of travelers' checks, and we're fortunate to have Professor Koshin here to tell us about it. Um, Donald Koshin is professor of law and deputy executive director of law at the Law and Economic Center at the Antonin Scalia Law School. He previously taught at Chapman University's Dale E. Fowler School of Law, and was an Olin Fellow at the University of Virginia School of Law. Professor Koshin's scholarship focuses on areas of property law, constitutional law, administrative law, natural resources, and environmental law, tort law, and law and economics. He's an elected member of the American Law Institute and served as advisor to the restatement of the law fourth property. 
Professor Koshin is a non-resident scholar at the, universe, at the Center for the Constitution at Georgetown University Law Center. He received his JD from Cornell Law School, where he was a John M. Olin Scholar in Law and Economics and Managing Editor of the Cornell International Law Journal. He received his BA from Western Michigan University, Magna Cum Laude, with majors in political science and philosophy. Professor Koshin was a law clerk to Judge Richard Sir Heinrich in the, on the US Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, and he practiced in the fields of natural resources and environmental law at Crowell Mori. Professor Koshin, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you to Nate and to Adam and to the entire Federalist Society team for organizing this panel. Uh, I'm going to be talking to you as, as um, Adam pointed out uh, about Delaware versus Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. This is a case consolidated with Arkansas versus Delaware. And as Adam mentioned, this is an original jurisdiction case. It's also an abandoned property or unclaimed property case. So when Nate said, you're gonna get excited, we're starting with the most exciting stuff right away. Um, so uh, the issues are, and I'm just gonna sort of read these and then get into sort of the deep, uh, deeper dive into what all of it means. Whether MoneyGram official checks or a money order, traveler's check, or other similar written instrument other than a third-party bank check on which a banking or financial organization or a business association is directly liable pursuant to 12 USC 2503, the Federal Disposition of Abandoned Money Orders and Travelers Check Act, or the FDA, as we will call it throughout here. Uh, the second is whether the court should command Wisconsin and Pennsylvania not to assert any claims over abandoned and unclaimed property related to MoneyGram official checks. And third, whether all future sums payable and abandoned MoneyGram official checks should be remitted to Delaware. Now, uh, once one state sues another, the other state, of course, has to come back with a countersuit. And so we see in a third party complaint, Pennsylvania uh, seeking to uh, apply the FDA, uh, the Disposition Act that was mentioned above, or if that act does not apply, in other words, if these are not truly money orders that we're talking about, these official checks from MoneyGram, then instead they would like to modify a standard that was set uh, in a previous case in 1965 uh, called Texas versus New Jersey, which we're going to spend a little time talking about. So next thing I want to do is tell you what are the stakes. You know, you may think that this abandoned or unclaimed property isn't really that big a deal, but why do the states care about this? Well, really, there's about $150 million on the table here where uh, this money is being diverted to Delaware uh, right now. Um, and the concern is that um, this should be shared among the other states if we had a different standard. And so the states are losing revenues that they think should be coming to them from this abandoned property. That is property that uh, no one is claiming which state allows it can get it by a sheet. And we'll talk a little bit again about what a sheet means to remind you from back in your law school days. Um, so $150 million on the table right here. And according to at least one report by some estimates, unclaimed checks overall may total more than $500 million this year. So uh, where we set the standard is going to be critically important. So what are these transactions that are the subject of the, of the dispute? Uh, mostly these are disputes between uh, several states over which state should be able to keep the abandoned property. In other words, which state should uh, uh, be able to uh, get the unclaimed or uncashed checks issued by MoneyGram payment systems. Uh, MoneyGram is the largest provider of money orders in the country. In addition to money orders, the company also issues official checks. 
um, which unlike most money orders by name money orders, and then the question under the act is going to be, well, is a money order only the thing that goes by a money order name label, or does a money order actually encompass a lot of different kinds of checks, including perhaps these official checks. So MoneyGram issues a number of different instruments, including these official checks, which unlike most money orders of what we typically as laymen think of as money orders are for large, these official checks are for larger amounts and are sold at financial institutions. In particular, the court is concerned about a teller's checks and agents checks under this category that are remitting to Delaware where MoneyGram is incorporated. Uh, should it go to Delaware or should it go to the, a different state? And we have different options. One could be where the, uh, where the, where the checks were purchased. That's um, the act, the disposition act that, that we're talking about. Um, or it could be uh, to some other place and the court uh, may need to figure that out. So uh, the, the history of all this, let's go through a little bit of that so you understand how this dispute came about. Um, in 2015 and 2016, Pennsylvania and some other states began suing Delaware and federal district courts for return of funds they said were for unclaimed property that was improperly remitted to Delaware. In other words, it should have been remitted to those states. They said, look, these unclaimed checks were for people that were for either transactions that occurred in our state or for people who uh, were in our state and therefore they should come to us. Delaware claims that these official checks should be sheeted to the state where the check issuer or debtor is incorporated, not the state where the checks were purchased by the creditor. Um, and so uh, here, MoneyGram is the debtor. They are the ones issuing the checks. The creditors are the ones with the property rights entitled to the checks. They're just not claiming. They're not, they're not grabbing onto their property rights. And consequently, we need to figure out, well, where should that money go? Uh, Delaware moved to dismiss those cases that were being brought by the states and the federal district courts. And on May 26, 2016, so quite a while ago, uh, they filed this original jurisdiction action, a motion with the United States Supreme Court requesting, requesting leave to file a bill of complaint against other states. Um, um, uh, regarding a sheetment of uncashed official checks. And so what did they claim? They claimed original jurisdiction here, um, uh, just a refresher on that. This is uh, both under the Constitution, Article 3, but also under 1251 of uh, 28 USC, where the Supreme Court shall have original and exclusive jurisdiction over all controversies between two or more states. And so here are two states claiming that they both are entitled to uh, have this abandoned property flow into their state coffers, a sheet to them uh, under the technical term term rather than uh, the other. So let's get back to basics again and, and talk about what does a sheet mean? What is abandoned property? And give some of the basic law of finders of abandoned property and then see how that plays out in all of this. Uh, as you will recall from your law school, early uh, law school, probably first semester days, the idea is that abandoned property traditionally under, um, uh, under property law goes to the first finder. That is abandoned property is fully relinquished. It is unequivocally relinquished. And then the first finder gets to take that property. Um, and they get it as the now the owner of that abandoned property because the other person has given up all their rights to it. Now, the owners, um, uh, the, the, even though the first to acquire this usually get this, with things like unclaimed property that is deemed abandoned by law, statutes may govern what it means to acquire that property, statutes may govern what it means to abandon it, and unclaimed checks that are uh, out there uh, kind of fall into that category, sometimes regulated by statute. But oftentimes they aren't, and the courts over time have had to figure out what do we do about that if it hasn't. So uh, under common law rules, an uncashed check typically sheets to the state of the creditor's last known address. Um, 
there, there is a secondary rule when there is no address or we can't figure out where this person is established in the 1965 Supreme Court case of Texas versus New Jersey. And more on that in just a minute. Suffice it to say that under this gen the general property rules of priority, right, unclaimed property with an unknown owner address, the sheet to the state, um, uh, where uh, we try to find it, you know, where the where it follows the owner of the property. But if if unclaimed property with an unknown owner address is a sheeted, uh, and we don't know where that state is that this person uh, actually lives, uh, then the the the, the standard in Texas versus New Jersey was that it sheets to the state where the holder is incorporated. Now, why do we why do we end up with some of these rules under Texas versus New Jersey? Part of it is this idea of the common law maxim mobilia sequentur personam. Uh, this is uh, the idea that intangible property may be found to follow the domicile of its owner. Here, the creditor. And so this is why the traditional rule is that the creditor is the one entitled to the money, they have the entitlement, they have the property right, and so the, the, the property right follows with them. And so the property right lands in the place where they are. The, the problem is when we don't know where they are and that's where these kind of cases come in. Um, <clears throat> The debtor or issuer, just to make sure we have all of our terminology straight, uh, does not have an entitlement to this property, the creditor does. Uh, so if the creditor has not claimed it, it's the creditor's entitlement that's being abandoned. So in that sense, it, it does make sense that the jurisdiction with the closest ties to the creditor would get the property if the property is to a sheet. Um, and what is a sheet? Well, every state has some statute with varying levels of specificity regarding the state's ability or inability to take title to certain abandoned uh, property through a sheet. A procedure, uh, as now quoting from Texas versus New Jersey, a procedure with ancient origins whereby a sovereign may acquire title to abandoned property if after a number of years, no rightful owner appears. Uh, so again, it's where does it go? And we have choices um, uh, there. So the precedents have been established in three key cases uh, over time at the, at the Supreme Court. And this is really what's before the court to interpret in, in addition to interpreting the, the act that we talked about, the FDA, uh, before. Um, these precedents are, are um, uh, first off, Texas versus New Jersey. The Supreme Court established so-called priority rules there. Um, so what were those priority rules? And these are what uh, are at the heart of much of this debate. Where, where the, first, uh, the first opportunity to sheet the property belongs to the state of the last known address of the creditor under this common law rule. This is before the act. Remember, the act doesn't come until 1974. Uh, the, in, in 1965, uh, the court is, is struggling with coming up with a common law rule that can, that can solve this. Um, so the primary rule is that we look for the no, last known address of the creditor, and that's where the, the property should sheet. Um, this uh, is based large in part, as should follow from the previous discussion, on principles of property and that the rights follow the owner. Justice Powell later explained in his 1972 Pennsylvania versus New York, uh, the 1972 Supreme Court case Pennsylvania versus New York, um, in a dissent joined by Justices Blackman and Rehnquist, that, quote, in looking at the residence of the creditor, the rule adopted by the court recognized, the court in Texas he's referring to, the, the 1965 case, recognized the company's unclaimed debts were assets of the individual creditors rather than assets of the debtor. Justice Powell also noted in that dissent in the 1972 case uh, that, it, that, it, that, that this uh, rule better uh, reflected a distribution of property that, that was uh, a reflection of a distribution of commerce across the United States. In other words, in that dissent, um, he explained, quote, in distributing the property among the creditor states, the rule had the advantage of dividing the property in a manner roughly proportionate to the commercial activities of each state's residents. 
In using the last known address as the sole indicator of domicile, the rule could be easy to administer or apply. That, that um, the, uh, uh, the idea then um, was uh, what was seen um, as you know, consistent with the Texas versus New Jersey. But then uh, we have to decide what happens when um, there is not um, a, a known address. Um, and that's where we get uh, uh, the secondary rule. That is in the 1965 case, the court came up with the primary rule that I just explained and then the secondary rule. The secondary rule was that there's no record of any address because the creditor's last known address is in a state which does not provide for the escheat or we do, uh, do not know where that address is. The court really seemed to apply an equitable standard at that point and say, um, what we should do is just, uh, if we don't know where it goes, it should go to the debtor's state uh, as the secondary rule. Now, as Justice Powell stressed in uh, that later dissent in 1972, the secondary rule was expected to be, in a lot of language in the 65 case indicates this, was expected to be a very narrow category. So then we get to the 1972 case in which Pennsylvania uh, uh, sues New York. And uh, Pennsylvania proposed that we should solve this issue of transactions in a sheet uh, by looking at where the debtor uh, if, if we did not have records of where the creditor last uh, owned, owned property, that it should be the state of the origin of the transaction that should be allowed to sheet it. And the majority in that case uh, said, no, we're going to stick with the Texas standard and we're going to apply that secondary rule um, and uh, that the priority rule established there should apply rather than this place of purchase. Effectively, uh, I mean, the, the, um, the, the Powell dissent went on to explain what, some, what he thought some of the consequences of that action would be. He said, quote, effectively, then the obligation of the debtor will be converted into an asset of the debtor's state of domicile and exclusion of the creditor state. So in other words, if everything's going to the debtor, it's going to go there. Uh, the court in Texas versus New Jersey, um, uh, he points out, uh, uh, specifically reputed they, this result on the ground that it was inconsistent with the principles of fairness. It would have exalted a minor factor to permit a sheet of obligations incurred all over the country by the state of which a debtor happened to incorporate itself. The fact the court was willing to permit this result in the few cases in which no record of address was available uh, or in which no law of a sheet applies does not dismiss, diminish the clear view that the court that this result would be impermissible on a basis of overall um, um, more than a small minority of debts. Now, I, I am running out of time, so I want to I want to just kind of get to why all, that, why all that history matters, because then Congress comes in and passes the, the statute. The statute says that uh, we're going to apply that point of purchase rule for money orders, traveler's checks, or other similar instruments. Um, and we then get uh, this, this claim as to whether or not these official checks are indeed money orders. So we have a matter of statutory interpretation. Uh, is this indeed a money order uh, or is it a similar instrument? And that's what the court has to determine whether or not it falls under the act. And if it does, then this place of purchase uh, uh, applies. And then a sheet will occur throughout the United States rather than all of these things, MoneyGram going to Delaware. Um, alternatively, uh, the, um, the Pennsylvania and the other states have argued for a, a revisiting of that 1965 secondary rule and instead coming up with something else. So the special master um, overall cited uh, uh, that um, that uh, stated uh, that uh, in his interim report that official checks were similar to money orders, and if not, uh, they were other similar written instruments. And in this case, Delaware is asking the Supreme Court to uh, review that and to uh, set it aside, and the, uh, the other states are asking that that 
uh, be upheld and or strengthened. So that's where we are uh, with this case. And um, I look forward to any questions you might have on it. It, it will have uh, implications across a number of different areas of financial transactions. Uh, it, it may in fact um, be much broader than we expect. Uh, so it looks like a narrow uh, issue as to one interpretation of a couple words in the act, but the overall determination could not only uh, uh, result in a determination of where uh, hundreds of millions of dollars go, but also uh, in, this, in these kind of instruments, but also a number of other financial instruments that may or may not achieve to the state as a result of being unclaimed property or abandoned property. Thank you, Professor Koshin. Um, and if there are any questions, um, feel free to either raise your hand or uh, use the Q&A function to ask them. Um, one question that I will ask um, is whether you think there's any likelihood that the court wants to uh, do a broad uh, revisit of its uh, prior equitable rules, or is it instead gonna look for um, statutory interpretation solution to this? Problem. So I, I think now that Congress has intervened, um, I, I mean, there, there's two ways to go about that, right? One is um, that uh, you could say Congress has shown that it has the capacity to uh, intervene and pass a statute which will govern these things, and their failure to do it with the greater specificity is their fault, and we should uh, we should uh, recognize this is Congress's domain, kick it back to Congress if Congress wants to. Uh, uh, more clearly identify similar instrument uh, than do so, because similar instrument is is re really relatively broad, and a lot of the arguments by both sides are bringing in intent arguments and other things that the justices may not want to uh, uh, um, tackle. So I do think there's a a good case to be made to just punt this, uh, you know, just say we're we're not going to resolve our equity. We're going to try and resolve this on statutory interpretation grounds and. Um, if it, if it, but it, but the problem there is that since they have to decide, if they decide the statute doesn't apply, um, then the residual area of regulation goes to common law. So I think they will have to, right? They, if they can determine that it doesn't apply under the statute, but they will have to decide the residual common law authority for governing the rest of it, um, because they can't just say there is no rule. And in that situation, I think it's very likely that they will um, try to at least clarify what they meant by that secondary rule. And, and it, there's a lot of language in the 1965 case which indicates that was not meant to be an exclusive secondary rule, that you could have different secondary rules depending on different uh, equities and different circumstances. And I think that would likely be where they go. Well, thank you, Professor Koshin. I, I find myself wondering if any of those traveler's checks have my name written on them and I just failed to cash them. Um, let's turn next to Sackett, the EPA a case about the perennial question of the meaning of the phrase waters of the United States. I'll introduce our two speakers in turn. Um, professor Patrick Parento is Emeritus Professor of Law and Senior Fellow for Climate Policy in the Environmental Law Center at Vermont Law School. He previously served as Director of the Environmental Law Center and was the founding director of the Environment and Natural Resources Law Clinic. Professor Parento's previous positions include Vice President for Conservation with the National Wildlife Federation, Regional Council to EPA's New England Regional Office, Commissioner of the Vermont Department of Environmental Conservation, and Senior Counsel with the Perkins Coie Law Firm. Professor Parento is a Fulbright U.S. scholar and a fellow in the American College of Environmental Lawyers. 
He holds a BS from Regis University, a JD from Creighton University, and an LLM in environmental law from the George Washington University. Um, our second speaker on this topic is Charles Yates. Uh, Charles Yates is an attorney in Pacific Legal Foundation's environmental practice group, where he litigates to defend private property rights and uphold the structural protections guaranteed by the Constitution's separation of powers. His practice at PLF focuses primarily on the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, and related regulatory issues. After obtaining a BA in political science and international relations from the University of Western Australia, Charles moved to the US where he earned his JD, magna cum laude, from the University of Baltimore School of Law. During law school, he served as president of this school's chapter of the Federal Society and was an editor of the University of Baltimore Law Review. Uh, let's turn first to Professor Parento. I think you're, you're on mute. You'd think I'd, I'd figure that out by now, wouldn't you? Thank you. Um, so good morning and thank you, Adam. Um, as Adam mentioned, um, you know, at the center of the Sackett case certainly is one of the most vexed terms in all of environmental law, which is the meaning of the phrase waters of the United States. After 50 years of the Clean Water Act, you would think we might have an answer to that question, but we don't. Um, this is the fourth time that question has been presented uh, to the United States Supreme Court. And I'll give a quick overview of the Sackett case and, and the chronology. It's, it's a saga. Uh, soon to be a Netflix documentary, I'm quite certain. Um, in round one, um, the Supreme Court ruled that EPA's compliance order issued in 2007 to the Sacketts, uh, requiring them to stop filling a wetland on their property adjacent to Priest Lake in the tip of the Idaho panhandle, um, um, which was EPA uh, alleged uh, a water of the United States, ordered them to stop filling it and restore the portion they'd filled. Um, the Sacketts claimed that that was a final agency action that they should be entitled to challenge in court since they had not had a hearing before EPA. Um, that question of pre-enforcement review was one that had been bouncing around the circuit courts for a number of years. And so the Supreme Court resolved that question and ruled that compliance orders under the uh, Clean uh, Water Act, which had very significant penalty implications uh, for those who failed to comply, uh, was indeed a final agency action subject to review under the Administrative Procedure Act, Section 7062. And so remanded the case to the district court in Idaho, which then held a very extensive trial. And I'm sure Charles could fill in a lot of the details on that since the Pacific Legal Foundation has been uh, the had been representing the Sackett from the beginning and, of course, has been very successful, frankly, in getting the Supreme Court to grant uh, review twice uh, in this case. So in, in round one, uh, after the district court held a very extensive uh, set of hearings, reviewing the administrative record, allowing supplementation, further inspections, and so on, finally ruled in EPA's favor and said, indeed, the wetland on the Sackett property was water of the United States. Um, and the, the findings of the court are important because the facts do matter. Um, this is a wetland um, that lies within 30 feet of what has been described in the record as an unnamed tributary, but a relatively permanent perennial body of water, a stream, 
which flows directly into Priest Lake, which is a major lake, of course. In fact, it's a lake renowned for its clarity and, and water quality. Uh, the wetland is also 300 uh, feet from the lake. Um, and it, the, the wetland on the Sackett property is part of a larger wetland complex known as the Kalispell uh, Wetland Complex. And the record revealed, according to the court's uh, decision, uh, lower court's decision, that the wetland um, does provide very significant ecological benefits to water quality and, and fish and wildlife and so forth uh, in, uh, in the lake. Um, and so the uh, district court ruled that the wetland was adjacent uh, to both the, this unnamed tributary and the lake within the meaning of the then applicable regulations, which is an important point that I think is going to be addressed in the oral argument upcoming on October 3rd uh, before the Supreme Court. The, both the lower court, district court, and the Ninth Circuit applied the 2008 Corps of Engineer EPA regulations defining when a wetland constitutes a water of the United States. And significantly, those regulations uh, said that a, a wetland that was otherwise adjacent and therefore jurisdictional would, would, would still be jurisdictional, notwithstanding that there was an artificial barrier like a berm, or in the case of the Sackets, a road uh, between the wetland and the tributary. So that's, that's part of the factual context of the Sackett case. You've got a wetland that is adjacent, but there's an intervening road. And what is the Supreme Court going to do about that? The Ninth Circuit then upheld uh, the district court, pretty much a straightforward upholding of the, the lower court's findings and, and conclusions of law. And of course, importantly, applied and this is where things get more interesting, uh, Justice Kennedy's concurring opinion um, in the fractured decision in the Rapanos case, which I hope people are familiar with. I don't know how you couldn't be. Um, and that concurring opinion adopted what's known as the significant nexus test. Um, it's instrumental that all of the circuit courts, 10 of them, that have addressed the question of which test under Rapanos is the controlling test, have looked to the Kennedy test, the significant nexus test. Some of the circuits have said if it's a wetland that's jurisdictional under either the Kennedy test or Justice Scalia's plurality opinion in, in Rapanos, uh, uh, under either test, if the wetland meets either test, it's jurisdictional. One circuit, 11th circuit, has said only the Kennedy test applies. So we have you know, uh, uh, not exactly a crazy quote, but we have a, a, a number of different circuit court decisions trying to ascertain what exactly is the, is the governing uh, test for wetlands. Um, this case on, on the record appears to be solely focused on a wetland, not the tributaries. Charles may want to say something about that as well. Um, so um, the... Uh, Yes, I see the question. Uh, no, there is no continuous surface water connection between the wetland and the tributary because of the road. There's, the record establishes, not surprisingly, there is underground groundwater uh, connection, quite close connection. In fact, it's all part of a hydrologic system, as you might imagine. So there's much interaction between the streams and the wetlands and the lake and, and all of that. Um, so. 
to get to the specific issue, because I know I have limited time here, um, the, the, the original petition, which Charles may want to discuss, uh, was, was seeking a pretty broad uh, review. And basically, uh, and I don't want to steal any, any, any thunder from Charles, but basically an adoption uh, of the Scalia test uh, and a rejection uh, of the Kennedy test. There's probably more to it than just that simple, but at least uh, a rejection of the significant nexus test and adoption of the Scalia test, which contains two elements. One, a relatively permanent body of water, that being the lake or the tributary, and a wetland continuously connected by a surface connection. Scalia's language in his plurality opinion doesn't say a continuous water surface connection. That may be implied, but it doesn't say that. It talks about, in one sense, a physical uh, connection and in another sense, a continuous surface connection. So what that means is, is also likely to be the subject of some inquiry. Um, so the question presented, though, that the court reframed is simply this. Did the Ninth Circuit apply the correct test in determining whether this wetland is a uh, jurisdictional wetland under the Clean Water Act? In the background, and I'll quickly move to the conclusion, um, we have another juxtaposition of an ongoing rulemaking. Uh, but there's lots and lots of other things going on with waters of the United States and the navigable waters protection rule that was adopted by the prior administration and the courts that have been reviewing that and two courts have vacated that and what's the status of that rule and lots and lots of confusion, frankly, about what's going on in this space called waters of the US. But EPA and the Corps are embarked on a two-phase rulemaking right now. The first phase, um, the Corps and EPA said, in light of the courts that have vacated the Trump rule, the Navigable Waters Protection Rule, um, we are going to codify the pre-2015 Waters of the U.S. rule. That's the rule adopted by the Obama administration and readopt the earlier mid-1980s, actually, rules on Waters of the U.S. with a couple of, uh, as we say in New Orleans, lanyaps, a couple of extra uh, items, which is uh, waters that meet either the Kennedy or uh, uh, Scalia test in Rapanos would also qualify as waters of the U.S. So we have an ongoing rulemaking. Um, that rule has been presented to the White House for clearance within the last two weeks. Uh, it's expected to be published in the Federal Register, maybe even before the oral argument, before the Supreme Court might come up in the argument, might not. Court probably won't take uh, uh, any kind of judicial review over the rule. It's not, not been completely final. Um, but you have that rulemaking. And then, just to top things off, EPA's promising and the core promising yet another rulemaking to, quote, refine this rule that they're now in the process of finalizing um, in, and taking into account further stakeholder views. So let me stop. Uh, one minute. Thank you very much, Adam. Uh, and just say this. Uh, it, it isn't about wetlands, okay? This definition of waters of the U.S., which Congress did not define in 1972 and has not taken the, the pains to define it ever since, despite several inquiry, uh, entreaties from the different justices, including Chief Justice Roberts, to come up with a, a final rule that resolves a lot of this. The reason it's so important is because this undergirds all of the programs of the Clean Water Act, all of the permit programs, 
all of the standard setting programs, all of the planning programs, all of the financial assistance programs, the oil and hazardous waste bill provisions, it, it undergirds the whole federal Clean Water Act. So getting an answer to this question is obviously very important. Whether we get the definitive answer that a lot of people are looking for, the once and for all definition of waters of the United States, I'm not certain about that at all. I'll leave that for the Q&A. Thank you, Adam. History is an indication uh, there will always be room for further clarification and yes. amendment uh, on this question. Charles, let's turn to you, Charles Yates. Yeah. <clears throat> thank you, Adam, and uh, thank you to Professor Parento for that very good good summary, and, and thank you to the Federalist Society. I really appreciate you having me on this, uh, on this panel. So Professor Parento uh, provided a good summary of the case in terms of its facts, the regulatory history, so what I want to do is, is focus in on some of the specifics and sort of the, some of the, the broader implications of the case for, um, for, this, for this question that, as Professor Parento uh, noted, uh, has really vexed regulators, courts and, and property owners for, for nearly five decades at this point. Now, at the outset, one thing I, I want to note is the, the unique posture in which this case comes to the Supreme Court and that uh, to Professor Parento referenced the, um, the regulations that were in effect in 2008 when the Sackett saga began, as well as the Biden administration's ongoing rulemaking. And I think an important thing to note is that the, the posture this case comes to the court is that we, because of the sort of convoluted regulatory history that's occurred over the past 15 years since Rapanos, we've sort of come full circle to the point where as a result of a, a vacature order, which vacated the Trump administration's a 2020 rule uh, out of Arizona back in 2021, uh, EPA and the Army Corps are now applying on the ground uh, their pre-2015 understanding of the, the operative term, which is the exact same post-Rapanus regime under which the Sackett's property was, was deemed jurisdictional. And, and another important note is that, the, as Professor Brento noted, uh, the Biden administration in its step one rulemaking, the rulemaking that is uh, notice and comment has now concluded on, uh, really purports just to simply codify that post-Rapanos understanding of, of the term. So we're looking at a, a situation where the, the, the regulations that are being applied on the ground and will continue to be applied on the ground are identical to those that, uh, that the Sacketts have been subjected to for the past 15 years. And with that, I want to discuss uh, a few sort of broader implications uh, of the case. I've got three here. The first is the, this question of regulatory clarity. I think that one thing that, that we can be sure of is that no matter what, in the Supreme Court revisiting Rapanos, provided we get a clear majority opinion, that will go a long way in providing substantial regulatory clarity to the public. As Professor Parenta noted, the, um, the court last addressed this question in 2006 in a split opinion in Rapanos. And in that decision, a majority of the justice agreed that this operative term navigable waters or waters of the United States must provide some geographic limitation on the scope of the federal government's authority, but they couldn't reach a, a consensus as to the appropriate test. So we have the vying Scalia plurality, which bases wetlands jurisdiction on a, on a surface connection and Justice Kennedy's test, significant nexus test, which was uh, which under which the Sackett's property was, was deemed jurisdictional by EPA and under which the, which is what the, Ninth Circuit applied below in, in upholding EPA's determination. And that significant nexus test is based on uh, just the, the, the fact that a purported wetland might have some 
sort of attenuated connection to a navigable water through, through the watershed. It's a very fact-specific and, and sort of complicated analysis that needs to occur. But since Rapanos was decided, successive presidential administrations have tried and failed to define the term navigable waters in a manner that survives judicial review. And what we've really experienced is sort of 15-year game of regulatory ping-pong where uh, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, both embarked upon significant notice and comment rulemakings, uh, neither of which uh, took effect nationwide for more than, more than a couple of months. So we have this convoluted regulatory history that's resulted in a situation where the regulated public every few years, every time there's a new presidential administration, every time a court vacates one of these rules, has had to pivot back to the underlying regime. And that's uh, been a cause of significant confusion and cost. So I think one thing, provided the Supreme Court does provide a, a majority opinion, it will, it will uh, go a long way in, in clarifying the sort of post-Rapanos Clean Water Act regime that we've been subject to. The second point I want to note relates to the sort of significant separation of powers implications of the, of the decision here, and particularly of the, the, the court revisiting this question. And this is because this uh, case, Sackett, pre presents the Supreme Court with the opportunity to correct what the agencies have essentially uh, treated as a, a, a boundless view of their jurisdictional authority under the Clean Water Act. Uh, Professor Parento noted the sort of centrality of this term navigable waters to the, to the Clean Water Act. It's the, it is the term that defines the geographic scope of the federal government's authority to, to, uh, to assert authority pursuant to the permitting regimes uh, in the Clean Water Act. So really, the term navigable waters represents the sort of jurisdictional outer scope of the federal government's authority uh, to regulate pursuant to the Clean Water Act. But starting in the mid-1970s, EPA and the Army Corps really began interpreting that term incredibly broadly to the point where by 1986, the, the regulations we're discussing, the agencies were interpreting the term as a sort of nearly limitless uh, grant of authority reaching basically any damp surface that one could think of. And at the time, a lot of observers noted that the, in just over a decade, the act had really taken on, the, the permitting regimes in the act had really taken on the character of a federal land use or zoning code. And I think this is well demonstrated by the facts of the Sacketts case, because the Sacketts were engaged in really a, a sort of quintessentially ordinary uh, act of, of land use, right? They were attempting to build a single family home on a residentially zoned lot in a subdivision that had been fully built out around them. And they were doing so with all of the necessary local permits to do so. However, due to this assertion of federal authority pursuant to the Clean Water Act, uh, they've been delayed in pursuing that project now for, for 15 years. And focusing on uh, Justice Kennedy's significant nexus test, which will be significant uh, in the, at the hearing and uh, in terms of the Supreme Court reaching a decision deciding which test uh, applies. So the significant text, nexus test, really it's, it, Justice Kennedy has framed it as a, in his opinion, framed it as a, as a limitation on agency authority. He linked it to the, to the text of the statute. But from the beginning, the agencies have treated this test due to its, its broad nature as really just providing a name for their sort of prior boundless approach to, to the Clean Water Act. And that's evidenced by uh, some of the amici uh, two, two former EPA administrators submitted amicus briefs in support of the respondents, and they essentially confirmed their view that significant nexus test um, 
really just provides a sort of name for what they've been doing all along. So it's important that by adopting the Sackett's profit framework and rejecting the significant nexus test, so adopting a framework based upon a continuous surface water connection, the Supreme Court would have the opportunity to restore EPA and the Army Corps uh, to their proper role by clarifying the scope of the agency's authority in accordance with the, with the text of the statute. And uh, with that, I will, uh, I will conclude. I'll look forward to some discussion and, and some questions. Thank you, Charles. And thank you, Professor uh, Parento. Um, if anyone has any questions, please feel free to submit them by Q&A or raise your hand. Uh, I'll start with one that's already been submitted from John Scheller. Um, and Professor Parento, looks like you already have an answer. Is federal law exclusive here due to preemption? or does state law play a role? I think the question before the court is simply the interpretation of the term waters of the United States in the Clean Water Act, but the Clean Water Act does not preempt state law. States would be free uh, to adopt a much broader definition of jurisdiction for waters covered by their state regulatory programs, whether it's wetlands, tributaries, lakes, or others. Um, so the, the Supreme Court a decision in Sackett is not going to impair the state's ability to adopt those laws. The real question is obviously a political one. The Environmental Law Institute did a study some years ago in which they concluded that 28 states have laws on the book saying they will not regulate any more, any stricter than federal law. So there would have to be, with a really narrow Supreme Court decision in Sackett, if, you, if the states were going to fill that gap, there'd have to be a lot of changes across the country for that to happen. Thank you. Um, we've got one more question and that is uh, about the structure of the act. Um, Charles, uh, Michael Hertz notes that the, the phrase um, navigable waters is itself a defined term in the Clean Water Act and that, um, and that, that definition uh, is what we're talking about here. And so the question is, does the Clean Water Act, or do you agree that the Clean Water Act, um, the jurisdiction that the EPA has under it, extends beyond waters that are traditionally navigable? So the, the test that the Sackets have proposed is that the Clean Water Act, and I think it's indisputable that the focus of the Clean Water Act was on the traditionally navigable waters of the United States. But uh, the way that term is used so the, the, the profit test for the SAC is to find that term waters of the United States, is that the focus is on the traditionally navigable waters of the United States that are subject to, uh, to, the, uh, to Congress's channels of commerce authority. And that really when we're talking about non-navigable waters or non-water features, such as wetlands, uh, to the extent their regulation is implicated in the Act, it's only to the extent that there is no ability to distinguish. So we're talking specifically about shoreline wetlands, a situation where there's no sort of clear demarcation between uh, wetlands on the shore of a, a, a water that would be more, more traditionally or ordinarily considered to be a, a, a traditionally navigable water. So uh, the, it's really to the extent we're, we're talking about features beyond sort of non-water features, uh, the Sackett's test focuses on that indistinguishability, that sort of line drawing ambiguity between shoreline wetlands and a water and accepts that under those circumstances where there's really no ability to distinguish, where there's no uh, physical or other structure uh, separating the two features, 
that those wetlands are brought in within the scope of the of the act. Thank you. Um, what role, if any, will uh, judicial deference to agencies play in this case? I, I note that in the last term, the Supreme Court bypassed several different opportunities to uh, to rule on Chevron deference and in fact avoided mentioning the doctrine at all. Is there any room here for Chevron? And if so, what, what would be the agency decision that the court would defer to? What role do you think deference will have here, if any? Um, let's start with Professor Parenta. Yeah, great question. I, I am going to be very interested to see if Chevron comes up in the, in the questioning. Um, I can say that in the Swank case, which is, you know, the second time that the Supreme Court looked at this question, uh, a Justice Rehnquist opinion, he decided, I should say the majority decided um, that no deference was due um, to the Corps of Engineers, which was the defendant in that case, on this question of waters of the U.S., because he said, if you accepted the Corps' broad interpretation, it would um, press the outer edges of Congress's Commerce Clause authority. And he invoked the, the constitutional avoidance doctrine, which Charles may want to comment on. Um, and so I think if Chevron does come up in Sackett, I think we may see um, a further elaboration of that constitutional avoidance question, um, um, because we know that several justices are interested in that. Um, and, and I'm not sure where that's going to lead. I guess my, my bottom line would be, I, I doubt that the, this majority uh, of the Supreme Court is going to grant very much deference. Um, maybe, uh, you know, the, the lesser form, not Chevron deference, uh, but, but some deference to the agency's expertise, but probably not controlling deference in the way Chevron would. It is a vague term. It is an undefined term. It's certainly ambiguous. Um, so you could make a case that Chevron step two should apply. And then you'd have a question as to whether the agency's interpretation was reasonable. And with that, I'll, I'll toss it to Charles. Yeah, so that, that's a very good question. The, the question of Chevron in this context is, is very interesting because Chevron applied in the first of the, the trilogy of cases on this question, Riverside Bayview, the Supreme Court did apply Chevron deference. But in the context of Sackett, I think it's, it's unlikely that it, that it will be applied or even come up because the agencies themselves haven't invoked Chevron deference. They've invoked deference, but it's more of a, a form of sort of prudential deference and that they're, to the extent they brief deference, they're really just asking that the Supreme Court defer to their, to their future rulemaking to sort of hold off on, on coming to a conclusion that might tie the agency's hands given there is a, a rulemaking ongoing. And I think that the reason for this sort of absence of, of, of Chevron is that the vying tests, the Scalia's plurality in Rapanos and Justice Kennedy's significant nexus test, the way I read them, are both framed as under a sort of Chevron step one analysis in that, I mean, Justice Scalia quite unambiguously ties his understanding of the waters of the United States to the, to the plain text of the statute. Justice Kennedy is a little less clear, but he does too tie his analysis to 
in, in coming to the significant nexus test to the to the text of the statute. And I think it's important to note that the dissenters in Rapanos actually faulted Justice Kennedy for not invoking uh, deference. Now, one, one quick note is to the extent deference may apply, I think it's less of the Chevron variety and more of the sort of State Farm, Baltimore Gas and Electric variety somewhere down the line. When we get to this question of uh, agency expertise, I think that really focuses on the technical question. So once we get a test from the Supreme Court, how to effectuate that test. So for instance, if the Supreme Court adopts the Sackett's uh, test, the surface water connection test, there would this be some sort of play in the joint, some room for agency expertise or rulemaking on this question as to what precisely constitutes that, that continuous surface water connection. But that's not deference in the, in the Chevron sense of the term. Well, thank you both uh, for that. It will be interesting to see how the saga continues. Uh, the next case we're going to address is Merrill v. Milligan, uh, our election law case for this sitting, and it concerns a challenge to Alabama's 2021 redistricting plan. Our expert on this case is Professor Domino. Michael Domino is a professor at Widener University Commonwealth Law School. He's the lead author of the casebooks Voting Rights and Election Law and Understanding Election Law and Voting Rights, and has written on the First Amendment judicial selection, and other topics relating to constitutional law. In 2011 and 2017, Professor Domino was awarded Widener's Douglas E. Ray Award for Excellence in Faculty Scholarship. After graduating cum laude in 2001 from Harvard Law School, where he was articles editor of the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, Professor Domino served as chief clerk to associate judge Albert Rosenblatt of the New York State Court of Appeals and then clerked for Senior Judge Larry Silverman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and Judge Paul Friedman of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. Professor Domino, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Nate. Thanks to the whole Federalist Society. It's really an honor to be part of this panel. And if you'll permit me to quote the great Vince Scully, Hi, everybody, and a very pleasant good morning to you wherever you may be. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about Merrill versus Milligan, which is a challenge to the redrawing of Alabama's congressional districts following the 2020 census. Alabama has seven congressional seats, and for the last several redistricting cycles, one of those districts has been majority Black. The challenge in this case relates to the contention that Alabama needs to draw a second majority black district to comply with the Voting Rights Act, specifically section two of the Voting Rights Act. And the, uh, the state is resisting that allegation and saying that uh, not only do we not have to draw a second majority black district, but that if we did draw a second majority black district, we would have to consider race to such an extent in the districting process that we would violate the constitution by creating a racial gerrymander. And so what the case involves is a very stark uh, conflict between the prevailing interpretation of section two of the Voting Rights Act, which um, requires states to take account of race, uh, including to the point of, of consciously drawing majority minority districts, 
and the court's doctrine associated with Shaw versus Reno, which goes by the, the name of the racial gerrymandering cases, that places a limit on the extent to which states can consider race in districting. Now, the Shaw cases don't forbid states from considering race in districting, but they do forbid states from drawing district lines when the predominant consideration in redistricting is race. So you're allowed to consider race, but only a little bit or only, uh, only so much uh, that it doesn't become the predominant factor in districting. If race is the predominant factor, then that use of race violates the constitution. And Alabama is saying in this case that drawing that second black district, the second majority black district out of seven would, uh, would require race to predominate in the drawing of the district lines. And that's true, they say, because the, uh, the geographical distribution of black voters in Alabama is such that if you account for traditional districting concerns, most especially if you try to maintain the core of the existing districts and just kind of tinker around the edges, that there is no neutral way of coming up with a districting plan that produces two majority minority districts. Instead, the only way that you get to majority minority districts is by looping voters together on the basis of race. Specifically, the um, District 1 in Alabama, which had been the Gulf Coast region, uh, kind of centered on Mobile, um, and District 2, which is the adjoining district, would have to be uh, fairly radically altered so that both would run all the way across the state from east to west with District 1 um, just going not only along the, the Gulf Coast, but also along the Florida Panhandle and District 2 going east to west just north of District 1. The claim is that drawing districts in that way would, um, would combine radically different communities of interest and in a way that that would necessarily mean that race would predominate in the drawing of the district lines over uh, pretty much all other kinds of, of traditional districting considerations, with the exception, of course, of the requirement that you place the same number of people in each of the districts. Now, to understand this, this conflict, you need to understand a little bit about the prevailing doctrine with respect to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The, the statute itself is kind of famously or inf infamously vague. It says, no voting prerequisite or standard or practice or procedure with respect to voting uh, shall be imposed in a manner which results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color. This is the so-called results test that was imposed in 1982 by Congress after the Supreme Court in an earlier case, City of Mobile versus Bolden, had interpreted the prior version of the Voting Rights Act to require discriminatory intent. Congress amended the Voting Rights Act after that decision and said, no, we don't want to require discriminatory intent. We want to impose a results test. So we want to declare illegal 
those voting practices or procedures, which has been interpreted to include redistricting, that, um, uh, that result in a denial or abridgment of voting rights on account of race or color. Now the statute goes on in section B uh, to, to clarify a little bit about what this results test means. And the court says that you have a violation of that section if based on the totality of the circumstances, the political processes leading to nomination or election are not equally open to participation by members of a class of citizens defined by race or color in that its members have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. So um, Alabama claims that this process is equally open. There is an equal opportunity to, to participate in the political process because if you draw a neutral map without consideration of race, you don't get to majority minority districts and uh, nobody, no racial group or any other group should uh, have the, the right under the Voting Rights Act or any other provision of law to require districts to be drawn in such a way as to maximize their, um, uh, their chances of, of success politically. The most important prior case to interpret this provision post 1982 is Thornburg versus Jingles, where the Supreme Court established three preconditions that challengers to a districting scheme have to demonstrate in order to succeed on a section two of the Voting Rights Act claim. And those three preconditions are number one, the minority group that says that it should be given um, an, an extra district must establish that it is sufficiently large and geographically compact to constitute a majority in a single member district. Number two and three, when they're combined, these second and third preconditions um, are, are combined in a term that we call racially polarized voting. Two, uh, the second precondition is that the minority community must vote as a block. And the third precondition is that the so-called white majority must uh, sufficiently vote as a block to defeat the candidate that is preferred by the minority community. Together, we call that racially polarized voting. And again, the challengers say here, this, this group, the blacks in Alabama are sufficiently large and geographically compact to constitute a majority in a second single member district, because if we draw the districts in this east to west way, we can get a majority of blacks in a second district. The Alabama says, well, the only way that you can do that is uh, to reiterate by prioritizing race to such an extent that it would be unconstitutional. Um, the, uh, the, the case then really boils down to a question of, of whether the court is going to revise its interpretation of section two of the Voting Rights Act that it established in Jingles. That if it, um, if it sticks with Jingles, if it says that, that, uh, uh, that 
you can establish these three preconditions and then have a right to a second majority minority district so long as you establish that the totality of the circumstances means that the existing plan doesn't give you an equal opportunity for voting influence, um, then it's quite likely that the challengers would win. The challengers did win at the district court here. If Alabama wins, what we might see is a substantial restructuring of the court's interpretation of section two, uh, possibly including a constitutional ruling that, that suggests that a very broad interpretation or even the traditional, uh, the established interpretation under, under Thornburg versus Jingles may, um, may produce a constitutional problem. Um, so to, to wrap up, I think, um, and I'll, I'll leave some for the questions and, and answers. I should mention that uh, Blacks in Alabama are 27% of the state's population. If they get two districts, they will have roughly proportionate representation in Congress. It's two sevenths is roughly their proportion of the population. But the Supreme Court has never said that any group, including a racial minority, has a right to proportional representation in Congress. And the Voting Rights Act itself, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, seems specifically to disclaim a right to proportional representation, where it says, nothing in this section establishes a right to have members of a protected class elected in numbers equal to their proportion in the population. On the other hand, the way the court has interpreted section two is to say, well, we have to figure out some way to determine based on the totality of the circumstances, whether this group has an equal opportunity to participate in the political process and elect representatives of its choice. How else are we going to determine whether they have this equal opportunity other than to compare the number of legislative seats they control as against their share of the population? So despite that, that proviso in the statute, the court has focused, at least to some extent, on rough proportionality. So in short, I think if, uh, if Alabama wins this case, it, it is entirely possible that it could be because the court is willing to entertain uh, a major rethinking of how Section 2 should be interpreted or how Section 2 interacts with the Equal Protection Clause and uh, the general suspicion that the court has that there's a problem when we focus on race in drawing district lines. Thanks very much. Thank you, Professor Domino. If anyone has a question, please uh, feel free to raise your hand or submit it through the Q&A. I'll start with one from Jeffrey Wood, uh, who notes that this is not the only case on the court's docket this term that deals with race consciousness. This is about uh, race conscious redistricting, but we've got the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and the Companion UNC case that are about race conscious admissions uh, at universities. And um, Jeffrey Wood asks, what is the likely intellectual spillover between uh, this case and those um, university admissions cases? I think that's a great question. And the, the confluence of those two cases during the same term, uh, in fact, they're, they're argued a month apart, uh, is going to be quite fascinating for 
for the whole country. That uh, it is possible that, and you'll hear more about it in next month's seat at the sitting, I suppose, it, it's possible that the Supreme Court would, in, would um, take on the affirmative action cases and establish a fairly clear uh, principle that bans consideration of race, at least in college admissions and other uh, similar kinds of things. It is, uh, of course, conceivable that the court would apply that same kind of, uh, of race neutrality rule to, um, to districting decisions and say it's unconstitutional to draw district lines considering race. But if it did that, number one, that's clearly not where the law is now. It's not where the law is with respect to affirmative action, and it's definitely not where the law is with respect to uh, to the creation of majority minority districts under the Voting Rights Act. Um, in fact, the Supreme Court has been, if not, <laughs> has, has said repeatedly, although it has not been clear uh, on the point, it's said repeatedly that race can be considered in drawing district lines. In fact, that the people, it would be unrealistic to expect people to disregard race since the people who draw district lines are intimately familiar with the demographics of their states. Um, but instead, we have this kind of vague prescription on considering race too much. Um, uh, it, it, so the answer to Mr. Wood's question is that it depends on what the court says in that case. If the court establishes a clear rule that says race may not be considered for any purpose whatsoever, then you could certainly get a kind of intellectual spillover. Um, but you don't have to. The court could say that consideration of race is unconstitutional for your more typical affirmative action controversies, but that the, the historical and other kinds of needs of, of protecting against racial discrimination in voting justify some amount of consideration of race such that would make, um, uh, make the creation, the intentional creation of majority minority districts um, uh, constitutional under the Voting Rights Act. Uh, one last question. Devin Watkins asks an interesting counterfactual. Um, if the court were to, to ban consideration of race in redistricting, um, how would the composition of Congress change? That may, may not be a question you've given any thought to, but it's an interesting question to ponder. Well, I'm not sure how much numbers would change overall, but there are allegations in this very case um, that if if race were not considered at all, the, the United States government, the Solicitor General, of course, is supporting the, the challengers to this law. The Solicitor General argues that if we banned consideration of race at all, then it's possible, in fact, reasonably likely that Alabama would not have any majority minority districts. And the 27% the of blacks would be without any representation Given the um, given the amount of racially polarized voting in the state, so to the extent that that pattern is repeated throughout the nation, I think that if we were to ban consideration of race, we would certainly see a great reduction in the number of majority minority districts across the country. Thank you, Professor Domino. Um, our last case, our last case that's going to get full treatment today is National Pork Producers Council v. Ross. Uh, as I gather, this is basically a case about uh, 
whether California can set requirements on how uh, uh, pig farmers in other states deal with their pigs. Um, and we're lucky to have Professor Koshin here uh, back from the first uh, case to talk to us about this one, Professor Koshin. Great, thank you very much, Adam. And uh, as Adam mentioned, I'm gonna be talking about National Pork Producers Council versus Ross. This is a dormant commerce clause case. Uh, broadly stated, it's asking uh, the court to consider what are the limits on state authority to regulate when that state uh, regulation or legislation has extraterritorial effects. In other words, how, many, how, how much extraterritorial effect is too much extraterritorial effect in essence? Um, so the questions presented in the case are whether the uh, allegations that a state law has dramatic economic effects largely outside the state and requires pervasive changes to an integrated nationwide industry state a violation of the dormant commerce clause or whether the ex extraterritoriality principle described in the Supreme Court's decisions is now a dead letter. And that language is drawing from uh, some a quotation directly from the Ninth Circuit, calling it a dead letter or largely a dead letter that I'll talk to you about in just a moment. And the second question presented is whether such allegations concerning a law that is based uh, solely on preferences regarding out-of-state housing of farm animals, state a claim under Pike versus Bruce Church Company, or excuse me, Bruce Church Inc., um, and uh, uh, so those are what the court is looking at. So what is the California law at issue here? The California law is, is uh, a 2018 law where the California has ratified Proposition 13, excuse me, Proposition 12, which bans any business from, quote, knowingly selling whole veal or pork meat that the business owner knows or should know is, in the, is the meat of an animal confined in a cruel manner. And uh, so the cruel manner, there's a variety of, you know, the, the act goes into the kind of purposes that it's trying to avoid, but basically uh, certain levels of confinement uh, without sufficient space limitations and the ability to turn around, et cetera, is considered a cruel manner. So we have a definition of cruel manner and it controls how the, uh, the pigs are actually uh, 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 managed. Note, uh, this this um, is a, as a result, it, because it is talking about the selling of this inside of California, it means that it's affecting anyone who is uh, doing an out-of-state housing of farm animals um, and planning to or trying to sell some part in the uh, in the California market. Uh, one of the things that the pork producers ultimately explain is that this is a highly nationalized market in which different pieces of the animals go to different places. Um, and uh, so it's very segmented. And so if you're doing any kind of farming like this in uh, Connecticut, you're likely to be selling in California, just as you are if you're in Michigan or in Georgia, something is going to flow into the California market, meaning that these restrictions essentially control how you would uh, be able to do that if you want to sell in this large and lucrative market known as California. Um, so the out-of-state pork producers uh, who, who, quote, sell whole pork meat into California for purposes of human food use in the state are also required to register with the uh, California Department. Um, and the regulations would require, uh, if you want to sell pork, for it to be uh, uh, certified by the Department of Food and Agriculture in California. And uh, you also have the possibility of inspections from California agents uh, coming out to other states to look at this. So the complaint as characterized by the Ninth Circuit is 
uh, alleges that, quote, alleges that Proposition 12 violates the Dormant Commerce Clause in two ways. First, it impermissibly regulates extraterritorial conduct outside of California borders by compelling out-of-state producers to change their operations to meet California standards. Uh, second, it imposes excessive burdens on interstate commerce without advancing any legitimate local interest because it significantly increases operation costs, but is not justified by any animal welfare interest and has no connection to human health or foodborne illness. So that is sort of our second question as to whether or not the Pike versus Bruce Church uh, standard would be would be met. Um, now, uh, it, it, the, the, this is how the Ninth Circuit characterizes the complaint at first. Uh, obviously, as you look through the Ninth Circuit opinion and you look through the complaint itself, uh, the complaint actually was much more detailed than that, but that gives you the gist of it. It is important that the complaint is more detailed than presented there, even as the Ninth Circuit recognizes later as it goes through uh, the, the various allegations in the complaint. Uh, it's important because we're going to see in a moment that, that the, the um, the Ninth Circuit actually rejected this uh, and, and granted a motion to dismiss, claiming that, claim, that that there was not a plausible claim in the complaint of a violation of the Dormant Commerce Clause. So before we get to the Ninth Circuit's ruling on this and, and what the court has to consider, um, a brief note on what is the Dormant Commerce Clause. Well, you know, to, to be textually fidelitous, there is no Dormant Commerce Clause. There is no clause which talks about this, but it is the absence of the clause and the implication from the Commerce Clause, the Interstate Commerce Clause, that that states are limited in what they can do to regulate activities that are outside their borders. So the basic idea is that if Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce, then states may not take actions that interfere with interstate commerce uh, because it in some way would infringe upon that congressional power. In other words, the decision not to act is still a decision, for example. So Congress not acting in a field doesn't mean that they don't have that exclusive authority to regulate interstate commerce, and that it also might violate federalism or interferes with federalism's operation or violates some other basic uh, principles of the Constitution. There are a span of arguments regarding what constitutes a violation, and there's great debate about it. So it spans from there is no dormant commerce clause. And the, and the Ninth Circuit very quickly points out that Justice Thomas has been highly critical of the existence of a dormant commerce clause. So why do some uh, justices and judges say there is no uh, commerce clause? Well, because it's not in, uh, there's no express text that uh, creates it. Uh, they say it's made up, it's not in the Constitution. Others say it might be real, but it's not judicially administrable. Uh, others say it might be real, but it's not for the courts to police. Um, and, and a variety of justifications come under that, too likely an invitation to activism on the courts. Others are concerned about separation of powers and invading the province of Congress, especially when Congress has the power to preempt states if states are interfering with Congress's power. Uh, others, other ways in which the Dormant Commerce Clause has been seen as enforceable would be indirect interference with key national concerns or areas requiring uniformity. Other theories posit that it, it extends to direct interference with or attempts to regulate activities internal to another state. Other theories talk about direct discriminatory laws harming out-of-state actors. And yet others talk about direct discriminatory laws privileging in-state actors and thus indirectly harming out-of-state actors. Another is state laws that have extraterritorial effects that cause indirect burdens on out-of-state actors or activities internal to other states. Part of the concern with all of this, of course, is that uh, one state will have the ability to impose its policy preferences on other states who in our system of federalism should have the ability to pursue their own policy preferences. Um, and 
Uh, you know, that's especially true when you have one big state with substantial market power like California that can use it to essentially bully other states by precluding access to its markets if you do not, do not play by its rules. Of course, whether or not that's constitutionally violative is a, is a bigger question. So uh, briefly, um, uh, I just, uh, I'll point out a couple things that the, the Ninth Circuit does and note that I'm going to talk about some of the rather broad statements the Ninth Circuit uh, has here, which makes me uh, think it would be unlikely that the court would uh, want to take this case up in order to affirm the Ninth Circuit. Um, it's just such an extreme opinion in that sense um, that it's more likely that they're either trying to cut it back or say that, look, this at least should have survived past the motion to dismiss stage, uh, whether or not they want to invite further percolation of the issue before it. But <clears throat> the Ninth Circuit starts out by saying that um, the under, under the precedent, a state law violates the Dormant Commerce Clause only in narrow circumstances because the complaint here does not plausibly allege that such narrow circumstances apply to Proposition 12. We conclude the district court did not err in dismissing the complaint for failure to state a claim. Um, they, they, they go on to uh, uh, explain their view of the, of the Dormant Commerce Clause as follows. Uh, under our precedent, state laws that regulate only conduct in the state, including the sale products in the state, do not have impermissible extraterritorial effects. A state law may require out-of-state producers to meet burdensome requirements in order to sell their products in the state without violating the, the Commerce Clause, the Dormant Commerce Clause. Even if a state's requirements have significant upstream effects outside of the state, and even if the burden of the law falls primarily on citizens of other states, the requirements do not impose impermissible extraterritorial effects. A state law is not impermissibly extraterritorially extraterritorial unless it directly regulates conduct that is wholly out of state. Of course, the idea of recognizing there's an effects test, but then saying that it must be direct seems like a contradiction in terms. Um, later, and this is uh, one of the last quotes I'll give you, is that the court goes on to say, California is free to regulate commerce and contracts within its borders with the goal of, with the goal of influencing the out-of-state choices of market participants. Uh, so again, um, there is this uh, strong statement in, in, in here, and um, they end with uh, quoting Justice uh, Thomas, as I mentioned, while the Dormant Commerce Clause is not yet a dead letter, it is moving in that direction. Indeed, some justices criticized Dormant Commerce Clause jurisprudence as being unmoored, and this is the quote uh, from uh, Thomas, quote, unmoored from any constitutional text and resulting in policy-laden judgments the courts are ill-equipped and arguably unauthorized to make. So that is the opinion that needs to be analyzed. I do think that um, what is uh, uh, what the court may be looking at is that this was just too quick a dismissal of uh, the potential claims. They may also want to um, allow these uh, for some percolation by encouraging more uh, complaints to be brought under the Dormant Commerce Clause by saying that this should have survived past that, which I assume would send a signal to people to file these lawsuits. Uh, there is a growing list of similar state laws that um, try to impose uh, regulations for that purpose, like uh, at the end of the Ninth Circuit opinion, for the purpose of influencing policy choices outside of the state. Um, and I, I, I'll end with one last thing, that all of the briefing uh, was done before Dobbs. Um, I do wonder, uh, you know, if uh, those who might have been uh, uh, worried, not, not, as worried about, uh, not as worried about dormant commerce clause issues on the left um, of the court, uh, would be more worried now. Um, and, and you, you know, I, I can give you an example. For example, if, if, if you were to pass a law in Texas that said 
you are you can't have reciprocal privileges to practice in hospitals in Texas if indeed you uh, provide abortion for for heart surgery if you indeed also provide abortion services in New York. Um, I think that would survive the Ninth Circuit test, and I'm not sure that um, uh, that kind of state authority would be welcome uh, uh, by all members of the court. Thank you, Professor Koshin. You mentioned that the court probably isn't didn't grant to affirm the Ninth Circuit. If it did, I think it would be the first time in a while. I think all of the Ninth Circuit's cases that went to the court uh, last term were reversed. Um, if we have any questions, uh, this now's the time. So please do raise your hand or submit your question through the Q&A feature. Um, uh, Professor Koshin, we've got a question here from Jack Park who asks um, about the implications of California's theory, if California were to prevail here, uh, what would the limits be? Could it could it regulate chicken production in Georgia, if, even if only a limited number of those chickens made it to California? I, I think ab absolutely. It would be indirect regulation, obviously. Um, but in order to enforce their indirect regulation, they could be sending inspectors to to confirm that these Georgia operations are consistent with this. So there could be in-state Georgia, California inspectors. Um, uh, and um, but if, if indeed you are trying to if any of that Georgia uh, uh, products from those chickens is likely to, or not even likely, is possible to end up in California, uh, then it would have to, in order to enter that market, meet the California standards, which would change the behavior in, in Georgia unless they didn't want to sell to Californians. Well, thank you very much. And thank you to our entire panel um, for your remarks. We got through half of the cases on the court's October term. Very briefly, the remaining cases are four, Ariano v. McDonough, which will be heard October 4, uh, concerns the question whether a one-year statutory deadline for veterans' disability claims is subject to equitable tolling. The Veterans Affairs Administration said no, and the Federal Circuit split evenly on Bonk. Um, Reed v. Gertz will be heard October 11, it's another deadline case, but this one asks whether the statute of limitations begins to run on a section 1983 claim seeking DNA testing of crime scene evidence, uh, either when the state trial court denied the request or instead when the appeals process concluded. Um, Andy Warhol Foundation versus Goldsmith, um, I think it'll be heard 12, I may have got that wrong. Um, you could call it 15 minutes of fame for the fair use doctrine. The case asks whether Warhol's use of a photographic image of the performing artist Prince transformed the original work, giving it new purpose and character. So we'll see what the court does with the purpose and character prong of that test. Uh, finally, Helix Energy Solutions versus Hewitt asks whether a supervisor making more than $200,000 is entitled to overtime compensation despite a regulatory exemption for highly compensated employees because he was paid on a daily basis rather than by salary. Um, so th that is the opening session for the court. We've got one question here um, that we can conclude with from uh, Solvig Singleton. California has enacted other laws that affect out-of-state firms in particular. 
There's California's internet privacy law, which in effect requires a lot of e-commerce operations to comply with California rules. Do the dormant, dormant commerce clause rules operate differently with e-commerce? Professor Koshin, any thoughts on the implications of this case for e-commerce? I, I think that's certainly um, one thing that has to be considered. And we have the Wayfair decision and, and other um, recent e-commerce decisions, which seem to indicate that um, there, there are ways in which the dormant commerce clause might apply. Um, and so uh, uh, there, there's no reason why it, it, it shouldn't. Um, if, if, if it's e-commerce, it, it makes it harder to figure out where the regulations stop. But um, I don't see why most of the arguments can't be made to do that. And so you have, you have a variety of states who have these uh, laws, which do have these extraterritorial effects. Um, and are designed to change the policies of other states. So it may be more difficult to administer and I, whether the court wants to take that into account in, in defining where, where the Commerce Clause uh, reaches is, is another question. Thank the other you. way That's that we might decide ultimately that is, is the need for uniformity, which is a separate standard that we don't have time to talk about today, but um, the, the need for uniformity may in fact um, come into play. Well, thank you uh, for those thoughts and thanks to our whole panel. I'll turn it back to you, Nate. Well, as promised in uh, an exciting, informative and efficient preview, our thanks to Adam, uh, Donald, Patrick, Charles and Mike for your time and expertise. We look forward to having uh, an opportunity to invite each of you uh, back again soon. Uh, we welcome audience feedback by email at info at fedsoc.org. Um, thank you all for joining us. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.